Lord of Grace Lutheran Church here in Moran, Arizona. Well, uh, welcome back again. This time you have audio. Uh, I want to welcome you back. This is the fourth installment of my little series where we look at the human sexuality study of the ELCA, the social statement from 2009. You can look at the three previous live, uh, live streams that I've done. Um, well, the first two were about the Bible. The last one we did a lot of the intro of the study, laying the groundwork for why do we believe what we believe, uh, what are the foundations of that, how do we come to that, those conclusions. Because I think a lot of us want to pick up the study and we want to jump right to the what do they say we can or can't do, um, what's a sin and what's not a sin. And I think that that, you know, yes, that's human nature, we want to skip all the pages and all the groundwork before that, but I think that's a little bit kind of, I don't know, that, that's jumping to the conclusion and missing the whole point. If you don't understand why we got to the point, then you don't understand, you know, it just looks like it's picking preferences. And I think that's what they were very careful in the study to try to avoid, to not make it look like it was just a bunch of people who sat down and said, well, this is what we want and what we like and we believe, so we're gonna approve it. Um, they laid out a groundwork and so you can disagree agree or disagree with that. So anyways, last week that was a lot of what it was. It was a lot of the groundwork. So I encourage you to go back. That's episode three. Today I'm going to look at some of the conclusions that we come to. Uh, hopefully I'll get through all of it. Uh, we'll see if I can manage to finish it all up. If not, we'll just do another episode uh, if it goes too long. So uh, let's get started with this again. Again, a quick review. Uh, I'll move over here to make it easier for the camera, but we'll do a quick review here. Um, 2009, this social statement was passed by the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America at the National Assembly in Minneapolis. And the assembly is held, used to be every other year, now it's every third year. The statement required a two-thirds vote of the assembly to be approved, and uh, it got a two-thirds vote. It did not get anything above a two-thirds vote. Uh, oh, we're going to adjust the uh, uh, just the camera a little bit. There we go. Um, so the joys of going live. And um, so yes, it was approved in 2009 uh, by a two-thirds majority vote. A social statement in the ELCA is not a mandatory required statement. You do not, ha it doesn't have the kind of authority where a person who is in our denomination has to agree with it. Even the pastors are not uh, required. You don't have to sign an oath agreeing to it. However, it is what the national church will use in terms of teaching and in terms of its advocacy efforts. It will use that. There, I think we should get this. I, we're putting me off center so that when the text goes up, you'll be able to see everything well. So, uh, as we're adjusting this. All right, um, so that's what this is. It's a teaching document. It is not an authority document. And now in 2009, there was another document, which was, I think they call it the Manual on Discipline. Got a fun name for that. That was what determines particularly, could we have pastors in same-sex relationships? Can pastors do uh, weddings? Or at the time, in 2009, it was called, uh, they were commitment ceremonies. They didn't use the word marriage because gay marriage hadn't been approved nationally yet by the Supreme Court. So. Uh, so that's, again, the introduction on the statement here that was approved, even shows it was approved by a vote of 676 to 338. All right, today we're going to jump about 14 pages in. I encourage you to download the whole statement and read it all yourself. It's right there online. I put the link in the description. I'm going to give you little snippets. That's about all I can do. And again, my disclaimer, this is not the official stance of the ELCA. This is just Lars's commentary and Lars's take on it. So take it or leave it. Hopefully this will help explain it, illuminate it a little bit. We're going to jump to page 14. We're going to get started and jump to page 14. And uh, we'll take a little look at this. Uh, here we are now at the point of looking at, we've spent the previous 13 and a half pages talking about our grounding and particularly this idea of trust. So the ethics of the statement are based on this idea that relationships should be in relationships of trust. And so that does tend to preclude things like one night stands and various casual encounters uh, simply because you don't have time to build trust. You know, those are more transactional and game playing and things like that. 
But if we believe that sexual re relations should be in a context of trust, what does that look like? Well, page 14 begins to answer that question. So I'm going to give you some of the bullet points of these criteria to think about when, as sort of a, maybe a metric, uh, when asking the question, is this an ethical way? Is this an ethical way to approach this relationship? All right, so here we go. I'll read it through. What then does trust in relation to human sexuality look like when understood in terms of service to the neighbor? In responding to this question, we reflect on God's love for and continuing involvement in creation and on the saving action of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. We look to scripture, to the Lutheran confessions, to the social and physical sciences, and to human reason, mercy, and compassion. In so doing, we boldly but humbly affirm that trustworthy relationships and social structures will, and I'll get to those in a second, but I want you to notice this. Trust in relationship to human sexuality and service to neighbor. So we're not using people, we're, we're always trying to seek to serve other people. Um, so, what does that look like? Well, uh, we reflect on, and then it gives five points. They aren't numbered, but there's five of them. God's love and continuing involvement in creation. There's that idea of, again, of a non-static creation that I talked about a lot the last time. God continues to be involved in creation. God is not the clock worker or clock winder of Thomas Jefferson. You know, Jefferson believed that God sort of made the earth and the universe, wound it up, set it on the right thing, and then sent us people to teach us morals and ethics, and then got the heck out of there. Uh, that's deism, basically. God made it, set it in motion, and stepped back. We don't believe that God stepped back. So we affirm that God's continuing evolved in creation, but it also means that creation is continuing. Uh, so that means that God's involvement in an, in an ongoing updating creation is going to be, to be ongoing and updating. So matters of human sexuality were not locked in in 1200 BC forever and always, amen. Uh, these are things that can be updated because creation itself evolves and moves and updates. All right, and the saving action in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. So God made creation. The next thing we look at is Jesus Christ, right? Remember, Christ is the, Christ is the ultimate test. So what else do we look to? We look to scripture, right? We've, we start there. Now, we don't stop at scripture, though, right? It doesn't say we try to mine the scripture and figure out what the Bible says so, and then say that's it, end of story. We start with scripture, but again, we understand scripture is contradictory and requires interpretation. To the Lutheran confessions, that's Lutheran doctrine. To the social and physical sciences, so we allow ourselves to consider science. We don't take an oppositional stance towards science, right? We don't take a uh, stance towards science that would deny um, what science says or assume that if science says something that disagrees with what's in the book, that science must necessarily be wrong. Um, that's important to say, right? And we look at social sciences as well. So when we make our ethical decisions, we actually listen to things like, you know, we look at things like demographics or uh, new understandings of how marriage and sexuality work and that the social sciences can help with this. What else do we look at? Human reason, we use our minds, and mercy and compassion, right? Very important. We believe in using mercy and compassion. Crazy idea, huh? But so often laws become enforced in ways that it's more where people become more concerned about the law being right than about mercy. And I know we could go on down that rabbit hole for a long time the sort of dichotomy between those who want uh, the mercy and compassion side versus the law side, right? And the two sides do tend to argue. The law side tends to think that, you know, people need boundaries and consequences, and sometimes people need to suffer for their consequences. And the other side, it's always like, well, you know, but, 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 you know. Um, we're going to use both of those, right? So we have both our scripture and our laws. Okay, mercy and compassion. In so doing, we boldly but humbly affirm. What do we boldly and humbly affirm? Um, we boldly and humbly affirm 
that structures will, so there we go, relationships and social structures. We're still not looking at this purely as an individual morality issue, right? This isn't simply a personal morality issue, although it definitely is that too. We also look at social structures because again, how we structure our sexual relationships often has to do with our social structures. Uh, I'll use a very simple example. Certain pe people with large sums of money are always seem to be more desirable uh, in a sexual marketplace than people who have a lack of money. And a, a, a um, unequalness in that can lead people to making decisions and doing things maybe they don't really want to do, but they feel pressured to do by money. We want to examine that and name that, right? Uh, and that sometimes uh, what we might call, uh, well, people might agree to things they don't really like, and that isn't really what we want. Right? We don't want people begrudgingly agreeing to a sexual relationship with someone because they need the money. Uh, that, that it shouldn't be, those aren't the kind of things. So that's what we mean by social structures. Um, all right, so let's go. It should promote value, promote value and respect the human dignity of each individual. Protect all from physical, emotional, and spiritual harm. Right? All sexual acts, relationships should promote and protect human dignity? It's a good question. Does this promote human dignity or is this just me getting what I want for a night, right? We also want to apply a bit of a no, no harm principle and not just physical harm but emotional harm, right? Love it and leave it, that can leave emotional harm, right? Manipulation, all those things that can create emotional harm. All right, next point. Demonstrate mercy, compassion, and justice for all, especially the, quote, least of these, who are the most vulnerable in relationships and in society. Again, we, we, you have to understand money and power dynamics, right? Um, ensure accountability and responsibility in relationships and the community, right? So th there, it does kind of matter in the, to, in, to in a certain extent. Uh, what we do. There is, a, there is a public concern. It may have limits, but there is a public concern. Promote the welfare of individuals and the common good of society and value the security and protection afforded through the making of promises, including social and contractual commitments. So in other words, what they're saying is that the, the, the whole notion of promises, including social and contractual commitments, that's a fancy way of saying marriage without saying marriage, right? Because again, there wasn't same-sex marriage in every state at this point. So the statement is opening the door or laying the groundwork for, you know, sort of commitment, maybe non-legally binding commitment ceremonies and all the various things that people did leading up to that. But what we're saying is that those kind of committed relationships that have a certain degree of public accountability, they do exist to protect people, right? What we don't want is people being used. That's always what we have to keep in the back of our minds. And relationships of, you know, the one night stand is people using people. We may think we agree to it, but ultimately that's not a relationship of trust, right? And, and it also, again, can put people in environments uh, where they feel like they ha I bet, well, I better do this or that because I'll have these consequences. When you have the structure of a commitment, it does protect people in many ways. And, you know, there are legal, there are also legal benefits, of course, to that. Uh, so these are the first foundations, right? Um, these are the things that it should. Now we'll keep going. Uh, we'll jump to page 1415 here. Uh, it says, this is the, these are the next bullet points. These foundations and protective conditions provide the necessary context and support for sustaining uh, uh, support, I'm sorry, for trusting relationships that are. So these, these criteria, these things, the value, the respect, provide uh, the conditions uh, for relationships that are. So this is how it should, this should be the outcome. If it is done well, if it is done well and we followed everything, this is sort of the ideal outcome. Here we go. Loving that include the, and reflect an abundance of agape, unlimited love, forgiveness, compassionate care and concern, eros, 
passion, excitement, and joy, and philia, care for neighbor. These are Greek terms that are all in the Bible. They're in the New Testament. Um, and agape, in that context, is much more community. Like the people in your church, you have agape love for. It's a partly a friendship, but it's deeper than friendship, but it doesn't imply anything sexually. Um, and then you have eros, which in the ancient Greek world is clearly, that, that's clearly sexual. Um, and, uh, and philia, which is care for your neighbor. And those words would get interchanged. Philia is where we get Philadelphia, right? And um, so relationships should include all three, all three. So eros is not bad or evil, uh, but it should be in a context that also includes agape, compassion and concern, and philia, care for your neighbor, right? So that we are, so that, that when we are being intimate with each other, we are being intimate with people that we already have these other parts of a relationship with. Next point. Life-giving, where affirmation is mutually shared, encouragement is given and received, and individual talents are nurtured and supported. Wow. So this is, even, this is kind of proactive. You're not just, it's not just that it isn't bad, it's that in, in, in done right, in the ideal, um, it should be mutually supporting, supporting individual talents, nurturing talents. So a person should, in theory, shouldn't have to give up all their hopes and dreams just to be a part of the relationship. We all know, of course, again, life can get messy and complicated and we all make compromises. Um, yeah, you can take that too far, but the idea is that it's supposed to be proactive. You're supposed to want to help nurture the other person's talents and help them to, as the army used to say, be all they could be. I love that slogan. I always thought that was a great slogan. All right, next point. Self-giving in the face of both opportunity and challenges. Fulfilling, that is, a place where a spirit of joy and an atmosphere of peace prevails. So it should be fulfilling, joyful, and at peace. Wow. Yeah, this, this would be a really, really great relationship if it followed all these points, right? Again, this is laying out the ideal, right? And that's part of what a teaching document is doing. Its job is to hold up the standard. Its job isn't to say, we know that it's pretty hard to do, so we're not going to make that the standard. The goal is to set the standard so that we can have these expectations, so that when somebody says, you know, what is, what is a healthy relationship look like? What does a good context for intimacy look like? The, this is what it should look like if it's done well. If you aren't seeing these things, then maybe there's a question, such as, next point, nurturing of physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Again, there's that positive, right? You're putting the positive in there. Truth-telling and honesty, we can all agree to that. Faithful in word and deed, including sexual fidelity. Committed, demonstrating loyalty in the face of difficult as well as good times, right? You're not just, this isn't just a contractual thing until it isn't fun anymore, right? You're supposed to be the good and the bad, rich or poor, sickness and health. Supportive for all who grow old, are vulnerable or are weak, right? It's not just, in, you know, when you're, when you're too old to satisfy me, I dump you. That's not how it's supposed to work. Hospitable, offering support and encouragement to others. So the relationship itself can be a context for nurturing the, the support of other people, right? So there's a community benefit. There's a, a, fan, a larger family benefit. And finally, a blessing to society and serve the good of the neighbor. Again, that's a tall order, right? There's a lot of big stuff here in these criteria. But if you really look at that, that, that would be a really good marriage to be in that one, right? Wouldn't it? And, and that this is the context. So notice how most of this stuff is not talking about the nitty-gritty about physical activity. It talks about, as much as anything, what a healthy relationship should look like, and that sexuality should be in the context of something like this, and that it should support and promote this. Notice how it isn't just promoting me getting what I want for me until I don't get what I want for me. Um, I, d I chose to print, I chose to put all those out because I thought those, the criteria, the ideal, I thought those were really good and kind of, they worded that really well. Um, you know, so when your teenager says, what should a relationship look like? Um, 
you know, it's more than just whether you have a piece of paper. And I all, I'm totally behind the piece of paper, but there's, this is, there's so much more to it than that. Okay, let's go to page 16 here. Uh, and um, we'll jump ahead to, uh, well, just another next point. All right. Here I'll read page 16. Christians believe that marriage is not solely to legitimate physical sexual intimacy, but to support long-term and durable communion for the good of others. It is a communion within which the play and delight of physical love are crucial expressions of the depth of trust and in which lovemaking can be a tender and generous act of self-giving that tends to the joy and pleasure of the other. So we're not anti, we're not anti-sex. We're not sex is bad and sex is evil and sex is just a thing that leads to sin. And I know that this goes back to the, all the way back to the Apostle Paul who kind of did think that all sort of passion and lust was just a, a it, it wasn't automatically sin, but it, it was always the first step on the slope towards it. And so his attitude was, well, you know, it's best if you don't do it at all, but if you can't hold, if you can't hold it in, get married. And so Paul really did kind of have an attitude that said the whole purpose of marriage was just so that you can, you can do it without being sinful. Uh, and, you know, you get into old Roman Catholic theology where, you know, sexual sins were considered mortal sins. Sex before marriage was a mortal sin. Adultery was a mortal sin. Masturbation was a mortal sin. All these things were mortal sins, but marriage was the context in which at least it stops being a sin. So then marriage becomes a sacrament because with a, if you do it without marriage, you go to hell. So then marriage becomes a way to keep you out of hell. Um, Lutherans, we don't take it in that kind of a way, right? But we do support marriage, but we are saying that it is not just about giving a legitimation. And I think that's important because you can see in a lot of you know, churches that get into that purity culture stuff, um, it very much is marriage is what legitimates it. And they'll talk about everything else, but because there's such an absolute strong stance of don't do it till you're married, not until you're married, not until you're married, you know, you see people who either, I think they either, you either get lots of sneaking around um, or uh, you get people married really quickly. And while I'm the first one to say that I don't think you necessarily need 10 years of living together to decide whether you're meant to be, on the other hand, just jumping into a marriage really quickly because you just want to legitimate it, I'm not sure that's very healthy or that that's going to last. I do remember in college, some, I knew some people who would do that. I mean, they were married by, you know, start school in September, they were married by Christmas, you know, and I always felt like it was just to legitimate it, that that's all it really was, was just to provide a context. And um, that, that that was a little bit too shallow. Uh, but on the flip side, as you can see, marriage is about so much more. Um, support long-term communion, right? Uh, and then, you know, you can, you know, maybe no one wants to talk about the play and delight of making love, but the say, statement gets into that. So it should be fun. It should not just be a chore. It shouldn't just be a chore and a duty and an obligation, right? If you view it as, as this uh, potential pathway to hell, or something that one must do out of obedience to the other, this kind of language, it really should be, it really should be a joy. Um, all right, let's keep going. Page 19. This is the section uh, that everybody wanted to get to. This is the part that everybody wants to jump to. This is the part that caused us so much headache. Uh, and I, I, I gotta be careful how I word that. Um, this was the section that got many people so angry that they created a big headache for us in the ELCA. Because again, there was nobody really out there angry that the ELCA was saying that you should have delight in lovemaking. There was no party that was against that. What they were against was anything that looked like gay marriage. And, and that was where the whole debate came. So they would pick out the social statement, jump to page 18 and 19, um, and say, see, the ELCA's gone off, uh, the ELCA's gone, you know, gone rogue, 
and no longer believes in the Bible. That phrase always drove me nuts. I believe in God. The Bible points me to God. I don't worship the Bible, and I don't believe in it, right? It, that's, that, that, that's just kind of the wrong phrase. But what they're really meaning when they say that is the ELCA doesn't take the Bible seriously and just does whatever they want anyways, um, which is not true at all. But as we said in the beginning, we don't just to inter in determining our ethics and morals as a church look simply and only at the text and try to perform a textual analysis. We look at it in a broader, bigger perspective because we believe that there are things to be learned from those other perspectives. So um, that doesn't mean we don't believe in the Bible, but I think when a lot of those people left the ELCA over this statement in particular, um, for many, this is kind of my reactions or the things I saw. For many, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. They already felt like the ELCA had become too progressive, that too many of these statements were becoming too liberal in general, and this was the one where they finally said, all right, enough's enough. I believe that with some. Um, I, I think there was also a lot of people who were just frustrated at the ELCA for maybe other things. They just didn't like the general trend of it. Uh, I think there were latent issues from the old merger in 1987 that people outside the church don't even know existed. But, um, you know, we combined some very different forms of polity. Some never really were happy with the way the ELCA was to begin with. Uh, and so this was, you know, one more thing of discontent. A lot of those who left the ELCA came from one of the particular predecessor bodies that was very conservative and congregational. So I think there was already some frustration over feeling like it was too the, the new church body was too hierarchical. That has nothing to do with gay marriage. Um, I also think a lot of the people who left, there were individual pastors who were leaving and trying to pull people away. Uh, pastors would go down the road, start a new church and say, here, come to my church, we believe in the Bible, and then would plunder a whole bunch of members from the ELCA church. I think that had more to do with following a pastor that people liked than it had to do with um, this statement. Uh, but either way, people left for a lot of reasons, but it wasn't as, I, I don't remember the exact percentage, and it was always hard to measure. You know, it was a certain number of hundred congregations that left, and again, I don't remember the exact number of that, but even those that left, again, they can give this as a reason. I think everybody had more complex motives, uh, and I think the situations were deeper than just this. Uh, but it also became kind of another culture war litmus test, right? Uh, I remember at my previous call, there was a, some sort of like Tucson Christian News or something, and they would just list the different churches in there. And after this statement came out, uh, we got kicked out, and we said, why, why are we not in, the pay, in your news anymore? Um, oh, because we only allow Bible-believing churches in here. Um, again, this became the stance on whether you believe in the Bible, you know, and as I've done in previous videos, boy, could I find you some Bible verses I can guarantee you those people don't believe in. Um, but, so here we are. This is, the, this is the section. So we've laid the foundation Faith in God based on God's promises and trust. Built the same thing for each other based on promises and trust, right? Relationships of intimacy of promise and trust. We've talked about the need for commitment and all these things. We've laid all this out. But nothing in that says that it could not happen between two people who are same gender. So, here we go. Page 19. And this one, I'm, I, I, I'm, I wanted to give more snippets, but this one I feel like I have to do the whole thing because it's the important thing, the big thing. All right, here we go. While Lutherans hold various convictions regarding lifelong monogamous same-gender relationships, this church is united on many critical issues. It opposes all forms of verbal or physical harassment and assault based on sexual orientation. It supports legislation and policies to protect civil rights and to prohibit discrimination in housing, employment, and public services. It has called upon congregations 
and members to welcome, care for, and support same-gender couples and their families and to advocate for their legal protection. You can already see why before we, that, that paragraph alone would be a deal killer for many. You know, the whole people with the, I won't make a gay wedding cake, you know, and they're willing to go to the Supreme Court over something like that. Um, you know, this is what already say that no, even if you hold a traditional position that says that same gendered relationships or, or the sexuality within that context is sinful and against scripture, you are still expected to support legislation that protects civil rights and opposes discrimination. Well, if you're somebody who is worried about normalizing it, then you clearly would not do that, right? Um, and so that's, there's already a rub, right? That alone is a rub. But what, but what the statement is saying that, look, even if we hold different positions, can't, we, we should be all be able to agree on this. This should be at least a basis that all of us can agree on. Well, you and I both know plenty of people can't agree on that. Well, okay, fine. There, there are 200 churches in Tucson. There's thousands of churches in America. You know, um, if you absolutely feel that your Christian faith is violated by uh, the church telling you you cannot physically harass people, uh, who are LGBTQ, then you know, I don't know what I can do for you. You know, I mean, I, I was up in a sermon one time, uh, and I was talking about uh, like coming. The, I was talking about Christ coming again, the second coming, and a lot of it was in the context of the Book of Revelation. And one of the big messages in the Book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, is that yes, it is going to get really bad. But eventually, it gets better, right? And so you have the perseverance and the patience and the endurance to get through the persecution that you're doing now, and you know you can do that because it will get better. We have hope and faith in this future that it will get better, right? So I used as an example. I said, um, it's kind of like this campaign, and I don't know if it's still around. It was. It was a great. It, it was great, and it said it was basically for you know LGBTQ kids who are getting bullied and harassed mercilessly, which happens all the time. Um, and the part of the campaign was to say it gets better, right? You won't be in high school your whole life. You will be able to get out of this whatever town and get away from the, that, you know, the homophobic townie that, that harasses you every time you go down the street. You know, there are ways, and when you become an adult, you can find places that support you. It gets better. And I said, that's the same thing. You can, you know, have some patience to get through this because it gets better. Gosh darn it, if there wasn't a guy in that back pew who grabbed his leather-bound Bible, which he brought in. We don't have leather-bound, we don't have leather-bound Bibles in our pews. Um, and he grabbed his leather-bound Bible and picked up his cowboy hat and he marched right out that back door. And I'm like, wow. Saying, let's not bully gay kids was a violation of his faith. I'm like, can't we all agree on that? That should be basic human rights 101, right? Don't bully people, ever. Um, but no, no, that was too much, right? Because, and I've heard this argument, I don't believe in it, that if we stop bullying gay kids, if we ban laws that stop bullying them, then that normalizes it. I'm like, really? You know, but I think for some people, they kind of, it's sad, but I think they view the bullying as a deterrent, right? Um, and, you know, well, if, you got, if you're bullied for acting gay, don't act gay. Well, you know, that isn't how it works, of course, and besides, you're being cruel and did Jesus ever say, yeah, people who don't do what you like, be mean to them. That'll teach them a good lesson. Good Lord, what Bible are you reading, right? Talk about harshness of law, right? When, 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 when these laws become so important to you that you're actually wanting people to be emotionally and physically traumatized to, to try to exert some sort of social conformity. So I'm glad they put this paragraph in there. Yeah, you know, if you really believe that um, people, that, that it's a violation, that you just, for your Christian faith, cannot, you have to support housing discrimination, you know, eh, maybe you do need to go somewhere else, I guess. You know, this should be basic stuff. Okay, let's keep going. 
So this is the preface. Now what we're going to do is it's going to get into the four positions. Uh, and essentially the statement is going to say that there are four different ways that we can look at this. So it says, page 19, the church also acknowledges that consensus does not exist concerning how to regard same-gendered committed relationships even after many years of thoughtful, respectful, and faithful study and conversation. We do not have agreement on whether this church should honor these relationships and uplift, shelter, and protect them, or on precisely how it is appropriate to do so. So again, you're back in 2009, right? And they're trying to, and they've, they've had studies out, and they've been taking feedback and comments, and they've got this big committee working on this statement, and they just had to acknowledge that there is a big divide. And the statement, I think, tried really hard to say that you can be a faithful Christian and disagree on this one particular point, and that we as a church are not going to say, you must agree on this position or get out. Uh, but you can see that if you're the kind of person who believes, well, it's all sinful and you don't disagree on sin, so you know, it shouldn't even be considered, um, well, yeah, then I guess that's too far for you, right? Um, and that was a common perspective. You know, we don't disagree to disagree on carjacking, it's just a sin. It's just wrong. We don't have carjacking churches and non-carjacking churches. You know, we all disagree it's a sin. So, you know, we don't have gay marriage churches and non-gay marriage churches. You don't have some endorsing a sin because they want... I, I heard that argument. Well, if that's what you believe, that you can, then you can't agree with this statement, I guess. Because this statement demands, at the very least, that you acknowledge the legitimacy of a more progressive position. Yes, there were people on the progressive side who went the other way too and didn't want to, you know, well, it's just bigotry. The other side is just bigotry. You don't endorse bigotry. Well, you know, the other position was the established church position for pretty much its entire existence. Um, so, but it recognizes there's differences. Let's go to page 20. Now we are going to get the four different positions. I put the numbers in there. They're bullet pointed in the actual statement, but I thought the numbers would help make it easier for us to follow. Okay, the church recognizes that with conviction and integrity on the basis of conscious bound belief, some are convinced that same gendered sexual behavior is sinful, contrary to biblical teaching and their understanding of natural law. They believe same-gender sexual behavior carries the grave danger of unrepentant sin. They therefore conclude that the neighbor and the community are best served by calling people in same-gender sexual relationships to repentance for that behavior and to a celibate lifestyle. Such decisions are intended to be accompanied by pastoral response and community support. <laughs> um, I love how they kind of threw that in, in the end there, you know. Um, but, I mean, and th this spells out the position, right? That, that, that you, and notice how they say, it's kind of in the third line, they believe same-gendered sexual behavior. So they're still keeping it focused on a behavior context. The old church position from the old Lutheran Church in America, pre-1987 merger, stated well, at least the policy for pastors was, if you are gay, you must be celibate, right? If you can't pray the urge away, if you can't pray the orientation away, if you can't, if you can't make yourself stop wanting it, at least you have to not act on it. That was what the statement said. Um, and so that's been you know, one of the arguments, the traditionalist arguments all along is that, look, we all have urges and behaviors that it's not ethical for us to act on. Just because I can't make it go away doesn't mean it's automatically right. Well, okay, but, you know, we can be smart enough to look at different situations the same, right? This is not the same thing as pedophilia, which is always compared to, right? Just because I have an urge to do that doesn't mean it's right. Well, yeah, but you're comparing you know, an abusive, traumatizing, horrific crime to what consenting adults are doing. That's apples and oranges. 
But to them, it's not apples and oranges. That's the argument, right? Because this is a desire, and we say that the, this is a desire that you can't make go away, but it's still sinful. This, therefore, this is also the same thing, a desire that you can't make go away that's sinful. Well, we're acknowledging this. The statement acknowledges that position, that a person can believe that with conviction and integrity. It does not say that people who believe that are bigots. Um, it just says that with conviction and integrity, you can believe that. Um, so you are not required, if you take that position, to leave the ELCA. Um, but if you take that position, you are required to support, as we talked about before, civil rights, non-discrimination. And, why did it say they'll be accompanied by pastoral response and community support? Because the people who wrote this know fully well that the people who take this position, who view it as unrepentant sin, are going to be, you know, not very happy with what's going to come in the last two bullet points here, right? So, it's still our job as churches to provide community support and response to people who are probably very angry and upset about this. Um, being perfectly honest, most of the people, at least in my experience, who held a really strong position on this just didn't end up staying in the ELCA. Uh, and, um, you know, agreeing to disagree is hard. And uh, it's really hard to agree to disagree with something that you feel is an unrepentant sin, right? Um, but not everybody did. And I did notice that had there not been a lot of these sort of schism pastors pulling people away. I remember I talked to a retired pastor and he said the same thing. He'd lost a lot of people from his congregation uh, to one of these schism pastors. Uh, and he said, you know what? There are a lot of these people, he said they were very traditional, very conservative, but they would have stayed with their congregation because they love their congregation. They would have ignored the statement and just, uh, you know, but because this schism pastor was down the road giving them phone calls saying, come on over here, you know, that pulled them away. Um, so that's bullet point I'm numbering one. Let's go to the next one, which I number two. Again, it's still a bullet point. On the basis of conscience-bound belief, some are convinced that homosexuality and even Lifelong monogamous homosexual relationships reflect a broken world in which some relationships do not pattern themselves after the creation God intended. While they acknowledge that such relationships may be lived out with mutuality and care, they do not believe that the neighbor or community are best served by publicly recognizing such relationships as traditional marriage. So this is a softer version of the first one, right? And Notice how, again, we're, uh, what, it's the fourth line down. We're back talking about creation. You know, again, that belief that there was a created order that's so important in evangelical theology, you know, that God created it. You know, that's, that's the phrase, you know, we were at, made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You know, and it's kind of like, well, just because God made Adam and Eve doesn't mean nothing could change after that, Right. It doesn't say he made them Adam and Eve and everything else is wrong. That's not what Genesis says. Um, but if you believe in this created order and this statement acknowledges that there is a strong belief in the necessity of this created order stuff. And they acknowledge that while that people on this side might even say, look, you might have a great relationship, but I don't think the church has any business calling it a marriage. Okay. Um, We'll acknowledge that position. Let's keep going to the next one, the third one. On the basis of conscience-bound belief, some are convinced that the scriptural witness does not address the context of sexual orientation and lifelong loving and committed relationships that we experience today. They believe that the neighbor and community are best served when same-gender relationships are honored and held to high standards and public accountability. But they do not equate these relationships with marriage. They do, however, affirm the need for community support and the role of pastoral care and may wish to surround lifelong monogamous relationships or covenant unions with prayer. So this position basically says, it's fine, just don't call it a marriage. All right, sure. 
Um, again, you know, the Supreme Court hadn't ruled yet. So uh, this was basically saying, you know, and, and that, that, so this argument was, it's fine, just don't call it marriage. All right, that, that's a little bit of a potato, potato argument, but you can see we're shifting a little bit more here, right? And then the last bullet point, the last, the fourth position, let me get on the camera, fourth position. On the basis of conscience-bound belief, some are convinced that the scriptural witness does not address the context of sexual orientation and committed relationships that we experience today. They believe that the neighbor and community are best served when same gender relationships are lived out with lifelong and monogamous commitments that are held to the same rigorous standard sexual ethics and status as heterosexual marriage. They surround such couples and their lifelong commitments with prayer to live in ways that glorify God, find strength for the challenges that will be faced and serve others. They believe same-gendered couples should avail themselves of social and legal support for themselves, their children, and other dependents, and seek the highest legal accountability available for their relationships. Again, notice how they, again, because it isn't legally marriage, but okay, so this is the fourth position. You can see how it goes from the farthest traditional to the most progressive, at least within the context of this statement, right? Um, and notice how it says right a bit in the beginning, it talks about the scripture, that basically we, d we look at the scripture and we understand that the scripture was written in a context of its own time. And in the scriptural context of its own time, they didn't, at least, at least in the context of the Bible writers, did not view homosexuality the way we view it today. Uh, that, and that that difference in understanding means that, be, that we shouldn't be imposing an, a sort of an ancient cultural context, rules that come out of that context in a different context that rule doesn't really apply, right? You know, all the rules about horses that are still on the books in Arizona, well, the context has changed, so the rule doesn't apply. That's the kind of the general thinking. And the general thinking is that, yes, people back in 1200 BC had no concept of, you know, how we understand sexual orientation today. They just couldn't imagine that. They were in a completely different world. Um, and so that it's fair of us to say that the scripture has its limitations, that it doesn't answer every question, that some of the things it answered just really aren't, don't apply because the context has changed, and therefore it is okay for us, right? Therefore it is okay for us to endorse, as they say, lifelong monogamous commitments, right? Uh, but we're keeping to the same standards as we do for heterosexual couples. So there isn't a there isn't a two-level thing. That, that was one of the concerns before this came out. So wait, if there's not gay marriage, again, the courts hadn't ruled on that yet, so that means that if you're gay, you can sleep around all you want, but straight people better get married. So the statement headed that off right at the pass. No, we're not creating a promiscuity pass for one side and a monogamy requirement for the other. We're not doing that. We're applying the same standard. So to some people, that's still kind of conservative, right? Uh, and some who want to say, well, we should all define our relationships however we want, any which way. Well, that's not this statement. The statement doesn't go to that extreme, right? This isn't boundaryless. This isn't pure relativism. This isn't pure subjectivity. Uh, that, but that's the one. And it's, again, those last two bullet points, particularly that one, that was the contested one. So... If you want to know what does the ELCA teach, that's what it teaches. And it was kind of interesting because um, when you sit down and you read it, it, all it gives you is a statement of four positions. It doesn't say this is what we believe and this is the right way. It said there are four legitimate ways to look at this, which um, is kind of not really as, you know, as far as many people would want to say. It's not as strongly affirmative as some people, I think, wanted it to be. I think there's talk of going back and looking at this again, revising it. It would have to go back to the National Assembly and any revisions would have to get a two-thirds vote. Um, 
you know, again, in lieu of the fact there's Supreme Court changes, in lieu of the fact that there's a lot of talk about transgender stuff that just isn't in this. This document did not do much to address that. So there's other issues that it left behind. I mean, it's already 13 years old, right? Um, so there's probably going to be some revision of this to include some more uh, and modify this. I don't know what that will look like. I'll wait and see how that happens. Um, you know, and when it does, there will be study documents that come out and whatnot. But so those are the positions. Those are the, those are the big four bullet points. And, um, uh, and so if anyone says, what does the ELCA teach on this? This is what we teach. Um, since then, you know, things have become so that, uh, you know, churches can do uh, same-sex weddings and um, do all the time. Uh, I did one back in 2013. The sky didn't fall. Lightning didn't zap me. Uh, the world didn't collapse. It was so utterly underwhelming uh, and ordinary that uh, everyone was like, wow, this is what we were all fighting for. Or, I mean, this is what we were fighting against. This is what everyone was so scared of. You know, we did it, went on, went to the reception, and life moved on, and the world moved on, and everyone was happy. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of synods that still want their pastors to go through their councils because they don't want a situation where the pastor's out doing same-sex weddings but the local congregation doesn't approve and then there's this friction. That, but that isn't what the policy says. That, that's, that's more like a bishop's recommendation. That's not an official written policy anywhere. Um, it's designed to prevent conflict, right? Synod offices are always trying to look at ways to prevent conflict uh, and head it off early and uh, you know, headed off at the pass, so to speak. Um, but that's kind of how it's become. It's interesting that, you know, as I reflect back on this, uh, you know, how much this issue has become the sort of dividing issue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scoot over. I'm going to move back to the middle if we can. There we go. Um, but just kind of, yeah, parting reflections here, how this kind of became the, the litmus test issue. And, you know, of all the things in Scripture that we don't follow, of all the places in Scripture where we draw lines, I've always mused how flippant we are with all the rules about economics and loans and social justice and how quickly we're e easily we can say, well, we can't all agree on whether there should be, you know, universal health care for all children, you know, that, that, but gosh darn it, when it comes to sexual morality, that's a, that's a line we're going to draw and a hill we're going to die on. And I, I do remember reading one pastor, he said, you know, I've seen pastors fall on their swords over the, uh, over the issue of, say, cohabitation, people living together. Um, I'm kinda, I don't really have a time to get into that section, but um, the statement does, if you read far enough, it does come down on the negative about cohabitation, right? Um, and again, I think that one will probably get revised too. But, you know, they'll fall on sexual ethics. They'll die on that hill. They'll get fired and lose their job and whatever. But they're scared to, they won't say a peep about, again, kids not getting health care or people being hungry or not having enough food. You know, because, of course, a lot of the times the solutions involve the government taxing people and then creating a program to distribute that tax. And I think for many, the thought of that kind of tax and distribution is so deeply scary um, that, that in many ways that crosses a far more, uh, these days, uh, a far more treacherous line to imply that because we love Jesus, we should tax the rich and provide free meals to kids. Um, you know, that, that's scandalous. But, you know, but that's how this statement was. Um, again, it, and it's always interesting to me that when we talk about believing in the Bible, that this is the, stand, the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't divorce, uh, which I've talked about before, but, you know, Jesus is very clear against divorce. If you want to be a literalist, he comes down so hard on divorce, brutally hard. Now, again, there's a context for that that makes it make a lot more sense in Jesus' context. But the church, we progressed and changed on our views on divorce, right? We decided at some point in time it wasn't the mortal sin. We weren't going to banish, you know, women who had been divorced from the congregation. And we kind of did it without a huge schism. 
without everybody breaking apart and nobody rent, you know, pulled their hair out and wrung their hands and said the ELC, you know, this is it. Nobody believes in the Bible anymore. Uh, we just kind of changed, updated and changed our beliefs on it and moved on. And uh, even a lot of the evangelical churches who will fall on this sword on this issue are full of divorced people, right? And um, so it's interesting that that one that has a literal basis, you know, people will go to the mat on. But yet, when it comes to LGBTQ stuff, Jesus said nothing. Uh, and as Jimmy Carter said, it was very common in the Greek and Roman world at the time. Jesus was totally aware of it and said nothing. So it clearly did not fall that high on Jesus's priority list. Uh, you know, if it was the grave moral sin that, you know, the number of times Jesus goes after things like debt collection, uh, boy, he comes down on that one, but, you know, doesn't say a thing about this, but we're not willing at all to go to the mat about government regulations to limit predatory lending by banks, you know. Um, and maybe it's just as, as people have pointed out to me, for a straight person to sit and ban gay marriage is easy. It doesn't take anything out of you, right? There's no sacrifice implied by towing that line. And it doesn't require you to reflect on your own life in the same way that a command to uh, have the government take away some of your money in the form of taxes to provide for social programs for people in poverty, now that involves my pocketbook, right? So I'm protecting my interest. This is an easy thing to make someone else's problem. Uh, maybe that's why it is. Uh, I don't know. I, I do think churches have become overly concerned often about matters of sexuality in the whole spectrum of what constitutes ethical personal behavior. And that the sexual do's and don'ts have become the th so important that that becomes the only thing that we really stand for. And that becomes the thing that everyone knows us by, right? You know, Hollywood, I swear, thinks that the only thing Christianity teaches is don't be gay and don't have sex before marriage. Um, and their characters that they show are either repressed or perverted or judgmental. Um, you know, and, you know, in many ways, I think American Christianity, Big Tent, has nobody but itself to blame for that because that has been the issue that everybody drives home, right? And uh, I've covered other so ELCA social statements. Um, you know, the environment social statement is pretty progressive. The abortion social statement is fairly progressive. There were no schisms over those things. Um, this was what caused, the, this is what had the schisms. Um, so, I hope that's, again, that's been helpful. I'm kind of running out of my, running into my one hour time. I want to keep it around then. But, um, you know, I hope this has been helpful for you. And I hope you know that, at least where I stand, I've, play, I've, I've played my hand now. Let it know that I have done same-sex weddings and I have no problem doing that again. Um, and that this is a church which is part of why I do this study is because I want everyone out there to know that this is a church where when you come, we will not do that sort of, what do I call it, um, grace period uh, welcoming. You know, we say we welcome everybody no matter who you are, uh, but then after a few months, you better pray away all the things that we don't like. Yes, there are standards. If you come to the church and you're a, say, I'll use carjacking again, you're a career carjacker. I would assume that at some point, if you really love Jesus and want to faithfully follow God, you'll stop carjacking, right? But I'm not at six months going to tell you you have to pray the gay away, that there's an inherent sin, that this is some inherent sin that must be destroyed, um, or that you better, be, you better be celibate and hold it in. Uh, you know, there's plenty of those churches out there. Uh, this chunk of town, man, they're, they're on every street corner and every storefront and every school. And, you know, we're not that. We're the one place that isn't that. And, um, you know, you're welcome here and you won't be asked to pray anything away or change who uh, God made you to be. Uh, so if you haven't figured it out, I fall pretty, fa I, I fall pretty solidly on point number four. And um, so, and again, I think way too much harm has been done by being overly legalistic about sexuality on some of these things. Yes, the church has some places to grow. Uh, you know, the, the later pages, 
would get into things like, like I say, the cohabitation thing. I think there's a valid discussion there, particularly with skyrocketing rents, whether we really expect people uh, to get married instantaneously or hold it until they're 40, but we can get into another discussion about that. Uh, so I think there's plenty of room to grow. I think the statement probably will get a lot of updating. When it gets updated, it will probably move even farther to the uh, progressive stance. Because again, the people at point number one, you know, those who believe it's unrepentant sin, I, I think a lot have already just left the church. Uh, and so if anything, the ELCA is going to move more that way. And yeah, we did lose a lot of people. We lost a lot of money. The national office lost about half its income. So I think it went from like 60 million to 30 million and um, fired, was it 60 positions at the national office? They just walked in with severance checks to 60 of the employees. Uh, so, you know, there was some pain. There was some pain felt. Um, Lord of Grace, a lot of people left Lord of Grace to follow a former pastor who was very conservative on this issue. Uh, did they leave just because they liked him or because they agreed with the issue? Well, I think that gets gray, that gets into a lot of gray area. But we've taken a lot of, we've taken a lot of hits for this. And so at a certain point, you know, you take enough hits, you say kind of, well, maybe this is, maybe that's really what God's calling us to do is to be a more inclusive, welcoming kind of place, um, to be a little bit of an island on, on this issue. So uh, feel free, as always, to, you know, leave a comment, don't be a troll, uh, leave a comment um, or message me, you know, I'm here, um, you can call the church, you can drop a message. Uh, underneath this and uh, let me know if you want further discussion if there are other issues that you want to keep going um, I'm not going to do a whole live stream debating cohabitation or promiscuity uh, but just know that the statement comes down against promiscuity so um, again it's not as it's not as relativistic as I think some people make it out to be but now you know now you know the more you know right so anyways all right thank you all for tuning in for hanging with me for this hour. And um, like I say, give me a message. Hope you guys have a great week and I'll catch up with you in a couple weeks. Take care.